Beginnings and endings are powerful parts of any story. The biblical end times have been a story explored with intense interest for thousands of years. We explore eschatology after the music. Welcome to the Upwards Podcast, an initiative of Upper House on the campus of the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Through meaningful conversations, we explore the life of the mind and questions of the soul to enrich our university, our community, and the church. Be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your preferred podcast service, and check out our upcoming events at upperhouse.org. Hello and welcome back to Upwards. I'm your host, Dan. In this episode, I sit down again with our Director of Continuing Education, Tony Bolos, for a conversation where he interviews me about the main topics of my recent book, Eschatology, and one particular tradition called Dispensationalism. We explore some of the history of eschatology in the Church and some of the ways to examine this part of Christian theology. I earned a BA and MA from Colorado State University and a PhD from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in American Religious History. And I'm the author of two books on religious history, the more recent being The Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Tony Bolos. Hello, I am Tony Bolos. I am the Director of Continuing Education here at Upper House. And for those who don't know me, a few weeks ago, I did a podcast, and you can hear and learn a bit more about me. Today, though, we are with Dan Hummel uh, from Upper House. Dan, Hello. welcome. How are you today? I'm great. I'm glad to be in the interviewee chair. Instead of the yes, we've even, chair. like, we've switched sides. Is it yeah, weird for you being over there? A little, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'll work through it, though. <laughs> <laughs> well, great. We are here today to talk about eschatology and indirectly talk a bit about Dan's new book, the Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism, How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. So I must say I am almost done with this book. Um, I've been reading it very carefully in part because tomorrow I'm interviewing Dan on that book. Um, but today, on today's podcast, we want to indirectly talk about the book to talk about something that is very central, I think, uh, to his new book, and that is the topic of eschatology. Mm. And so I have a, several questions, but I think we'll just kind of talk about it and talk through it and see where the conversation leads. Yeah, and I sort of uh, uh, loaded the deck here because I asked to talk about this topic. So, Oh, I didn't know. Tony, okay. I'm, I'm glad that you're willing to be a dialogue partner on eschatology, which is a big area of Christian theology. It's often one in the American Christian context that's seen as... Um, well, it depends on who you ask, but a lot of people probably see it as unseemly or sort of uh, sensationalist. Um, but it's, as we'll talk about, I think it's a really important part of the broader um, understanding of the world that the Bible offers us and that Christianity in particular offers. So excited to talk about it. Yeah, I think for someone like myself who grew up in uh, evangelicalism, I guess you could say, um, it was a big part of my childhood, mm. and I thought about this a lot, this question, the end times, and I think you're right when you say there is this idea that it's something a bit more sensationalist, a bit more, it, it is rather dramatic, and the mm. cover of your book actually, um, <laughs> I think, kind of proves that point. Um, if you look the book up, uh, it, it is sort of this apocalyptic end times uh, cover there, and it looks like everything is kind of burned up. Right. Right. And so maybe it's got the orange and red looks like maybe like a nuke just went off or something in that, uh, in that city or something like the end is here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So maybe that's a good place to start then because, uh, it, this isn't the most, uh, I have several questions, but maybe this goes at the end, but I'll, I'll throw it out now. Uh, wh why has sort of uh, this issue of end times been, or eschatology, I guess, been associated so closely with um total and massive destruction hmm. right and uh maybe briefly say what eschatology is and then if you could answer that question that'd be a really interesting place to start yeah so eschatology um is a term that basically means the study ology study of eschaton uh the end um so it's the study of of things around the end and and the two main ways that theologians have talked about that is um 
the end of the world, sort of the cosmic end, and then also the end of individual lives. So often in the sort of bucket of eschatology is discussion or sort of uh, theology around um, the uh, death and judgment sort of on an individual level of the person, but also on the cosmic level of uh, as most Christians who sort of recite the uh, historic creeds would talk about uh, the second coming of Jesus and the judgment um, of all people, uh, of all creation. So uh, that's really what eschatology uh, uh, contains within it. It's become uh, associated with death and destruction because um, the parts of the Bible that talk about it uh, tend to be the prophetic parts. So we, we often think of, um, and this is in a Christian uh, schema, but we often think of the Hebrew prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, parts of those books are, tend to be understood as being relating to sort of the future. Depends on who you ask. We can get into that. Um, also the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And there are very dramatic symbols and imagery in those that point to sort of world-changing global events, uh, the fall and rise of empires, um, the you know, plagues and pestilence and wars. Uh, that is what the apocalyptic genre uh, tends to talk about. And a lot of the debate has been over how you could say literally to take those uh, visions that the prophets have. Um, literally is a hard word, but, but really, do you think when you're reading, do you think these things will happen in sort of a historical time material way, or are they symbols for things happening in the spiritual world? Hmm. Um, or do they represent something else entirely? And these are some of the base Christians have about this. Um, but, uh, in recent centuries, particularly in the West, um, there's been a pretty strong tradition of literal readings of these, uh, passages in the Bible that have led to, um, a lot of people trying to correlate, uh, prophecy passages with things happening in the world. And there's been plenty of dramatic things in the last couple centuries, uh, in the world, including world wars and the introduction of atomic bombs and other things that have led a lot of people to associate eschatology with those really dramatic dis, uh, scenes of destruction. Okay, so if I'm understanding you right, then it, it, is it a more recent development? So to think about the end times mm. uh, in this sort of apocalyptic nuclear bombs going off kind yeah. of way? Um, or has it always been something that Christians, when they think about the end times, they don't think about ushering in something more beautiful, something better, um, you know, uh, a green garden or a return to the Garden of Eden, so to speak. Mm -hmm. uh, is that more recent? Is that what you're saying? The, the, the way we talk about now is, is more recent. If you go all the way back to um, the church fathers, there are definitely church fathers who think something dramatic is going to happen very soon. And they're looking for the return of Jesus in sort of a, a bodily form. Who will, who will establish a kingdom. And that's been a tradition that was actually quite popular among the church fathers. Um, it really declines and you get a more, uh, a less, um, the, the term we often use around that is millenarian. So the millennial kingdom is this vision in, in Revelation 20. And so if you're really anticipating the millennium coming, the thousand year reign of Jesus in some literal sense, um, you, you tend to be labeled as millenarian. So that millenarian uh, tradition goes all the way back to the beginning. Um, Augustine, the key thinker in the sort of Christian tradition, uh, starts actually in that mode, but he changes over his life and becomes really uh, uh, averse to thinking about a literal reign of Jesus, uh, sort of Jesus breaking into history, establishing a kingdom for a thousand years, like in the next, in his lifetime or something like that. So uh, Augustine really influences church history for a long time afterward by wanting to allegorize and, and really spiritualize those passages and move away from any type of immediate expectation of the end. And so for much of the uh, late classical periods or after the, after the fifth century, um, uh, all the way up through the medieval period, you have sort of examples of more apocalyptic or millenarian um, thinkers or writers, but they're the outlier. And uh, the if you think about the Catholic church, the Catholic church, uh, tends to see itself as the kingdom, the millennial kingdom. And so there, there are people who are protesting the church at different points. There's one famous one. Um, I've actually never said his name out loud. So I've, I've read about him a lot. I think it's Joachim of Fiore, um, who is a 13th century, um, mystic 
who has a, a very apocalyptic vision. He thinks the Pope is the Antichrist. He thinks the Catholic Church is Babylon. Um, he talks about three different ages, and we're at the end of the second age, and the third age is about to come. Um, he's deemed really outside the bounds of, of Catholic teaching, but he's, he's one example of someone who keeps that sort of millenarian flame alive. And it's not really until the Reformation and the opening up of a variety of interpretations that you get a broader conversation and a lot more different sort of views on um, this, this type of more dramatic end times uh, eschatolo eschatology scenario. Okay, interesting. So you brought up Catholics. Mm. And so one question I have about this would be, is this another area of deep division between, say, Catholics, Protestants, or Catholics, Protestants, and Evangelicals? Yeah. Um, yeah, I'm wondering sort of what the what the standard Catholic view on this is, and are they are they very opposed when it comes to eschatology and times? Yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, um, certainly at the official level, um, the Catholic Church is pretty opposed to a millenarian uh, discussion uh, or movements. There was a lot of uh, unrest at, right around the year 1000. A lot of people put place significance in that year. Um, there were also some pretty horrible plagues and other things happening. So people were trying to correlate. And, um, and these are um, more uh, grassroots uh, uh, poor people um, who, were, who were thinking this way. So on the official level, the Catholic Church tends to be, has tended to be for most of its history, really averse to um, eschatology as, as any type of immediate uh, dramatic uh, area of thought. But there have repeatedly been, uh, you could even think about it as sort of a class-based um, uh, revolt or revolution from the bottom up. When times have been hard, apocalyptic thinking has been one of the tools in the toolbox of Christians from time immemorial um, to critique the powers that be and to hope for a better age to come. And so um, there are definitely examples. Once you get to the Reformation, you get a whole sort of conversation on the Protestant side that creates some of the categories we now use, including pre and post millennial and all that kind of stuff that we can get into. Um, and that tends to be a largely Protestant conversation. And part of that is because Protestantism allows for um, much more direct uh, uh, claims to authority in interpreting the Bible. You're not mediating through church hierarchy as much. Um, and there's a lot of scholarship done on the original Hebrew and Greek languages of the Bible that produce a lot of different insights based on who you talk to that lead to eschatology taking a, a, a more central stage in Protestant thinking. Okay, interesting. So I have a quick follow-up, but first I want to mention uh, the Left Behind book series mm. that maybe if you're listening, uh, you had these as a teenager. I read almost all of them. I think I kind of burned out. How many books were there? Do you remember exactly how many? I read all of the original 12. Uh, okay. A good number. Uh, and then there were another three, I think, after that, which I didn't totally get the concept of because by the 12th one, the second coming has happened. Like you sort of, but I, I think the next three are about the millennial kingdom. So I don't know what actually happens. It seems like everything's good, but I'm sure something, there has to be a plot to those. Okay. Um, so and then there was also a whole kid series. So you didn't even get oh, to half of the, oh, wow. um, <laughs> half of it. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah, so I probably read six or seven of these books, and these yeah. were books that were all about eschatology, the end times, yeah. the you know the second coming, the rapture, the antichrist coming. W would these books have been obviously they were in all kinds of bookstores? Mm. If I were to walk down and find a Catholic bookstore, would they've had those books in there just because they were selling, or was this something oh, that was just yeah. sort of a a phenomenon with uh, Protestants and uh, evangelicals in the nineties? Yeah, that's a good question. I don't know what, um, uh, it depends on how, uh, orthodox the Catholic bookstore might be. Um, it certainly wouldn't fit into anything that the Catholic church teaches. Um, th those books sold in the tens of millions. So they sold even beyond the evangelical world. Um, my suspicion is a lot of it was crossover with just a general, um, sort of fiction reading, sort of, uh, uh, uh thriller type reader reader audience uh but um, i'm sure there were catholics who read it but it wouldn't have been something that any catholic teacher would have endorsed it is so tied up with the particular type of theology i write in this book about called dispensationalism the the particular uh sort of plot points the the uh the developments on the sort of global stage that the left behind novels talk about make no sense in a sort of catholic reading of the bible it's it's a particularly literalist protestant reading that gets you that scenario so 
Catholics could have read it. They might have read it and not even connected it to sort of what they personally believe about the end times, but it wouldn't have fit into any official teaching. Yeah, that's good. I mean, I'm sure tens of millions of copies that were sold. There were a few that got into Catholic hands. I'm sure. I'm sure. <laughs> yes. Um, okay. Well, I'm curious. So you grew up, uh, uh, your parents were missionaries yes. in Germany. And uh, so you grew up hearing about the end times, I assume. You it wasn't, yes. I mean, it, we were, it wasn't like some oppressive thing where every night we talked about <laughs> the end of the world or anything, but it was definitely in the background that, that we should be ready. Jesus could come at any moment. Um, and, uh, an interpretation of the things in the world that were negative as sort of typical, like expected based on our understanding of the Bible, that things would get worse and worse until Jesus would come back to save, uh, save those who believed in him. Yeah. Okay. So where, yeah. So where I was headed with this question was, and you, you brought it up there, um, because I, I'm reading your book and I'm realizing that, yeah, maybe some of this stuff that I thought as a kid, obviously about, Hey, get ready. Jesus can come at any minute. There were songs about this that I'm right. That we sang at Bible camp. Um, there was a great nineties, uh, content, Christian contemporary song called people get ready. Jesus is coming. That's right. That's yeah. what I was thinking of. Yeah. Would you want to sing that for us or uh, no, no. I okay. No. Um, <laughs> now I, I have the tune stuck in my head right now. Um, <laughs> pretty so catchy. Yeah. It is really catchy. <laughs> Uh, so if you're listening, Google it, take a break, go listen to the song and then yeah. come back. Um, yeah, people get ready. Jesus is coming. So I'm curious, uh, uh, is this idea that the return of Jesus is imminent? Is that something specifically related to, uh, those who were dispensationalists or yeah. have Christians always thought that, no, it, you know, this idea that there can be, uh, the imminent return of Jesus, this is something that you find and it's pretty clear in the New Testament. And the way this is played out uh, in different traditions depends a bit on your views of the millennial kingdom mm-hmm. or if you're a dispensationalist or not. Is, is that accurate or what's going on there? Yeah. Um, well, there's definitely passages in the Bible. Uh, you can think of uh, part of Matt, Matthew 24. Um, you can think of uh, other gospel passages, other passages from Paul, where Christians are called to sort of uh, watch for the return of Jesus. and depends on how you interpret that, but a, a sort of, you know, really just on the surface reading would say at some level, we're called as Christians to anticipate the return of Jesus. Um, what is unique about the, uh, the sort of dispensationalist view is because of the way they're trying to organize their reading of the Bible and all the other stuff they're trying to do in their theological system, they develop uh, this, what they call an imminent rapture, an imminent meaning at any particular moment uh, true Christians could be raptured or taken away from the earth. Um, the, the idea of a rapture is, is not shared, at least not it, it, the way I just described it, is not shared by most Christians. Um, the idea that at any moment all the true people would just disappear, that's pretty distinct to the dispensational uh, system. And that's one of the remarkable things if you're in that or if you're just an American who's just observing Christian culture, you might assume that most Christians believe that just because of the way that the popular depiction of Christian beliefs about the end is that the rapture is like just right in the middle there, but it's actually a pretty distinct, uh, dispensational teaching. But most, uh, Christians, those who confess, you know, the sort of historic creeds, um, uh, do believe at some point that Christians will, will sort of somehow meet Jesus, um, either in heaven or some, somewhere in between heaven and earth or something like that. Um, and so that's often what's called the rapture, but the distinctive, any moment imminent rapture, um, is a dispensational teaching. And it really shapes a lot of how um, dispensationalists talk about the church and what the role of the church is, where they talk about their sort of individual lives and the significance of of what they call the blessed hope is that that's the mm. the rapture that comes from a verse uh, from Paul. Um, but yeah, that that's the distinctive part uh, around uh, around the rapture teaching that is uh, that is distinctly dispensational, yeah. so my wife told me a story about, uh, she also grew up um, in a church that talked quite a bit about the end times, Sunday school classes on the eschatology, on eschatology things mm-hmm. like that. She was seven or eight uh, sitting in the car and she said she looked up. I, I, I guess she was probably a bit younger than that because she looked up and said, Mom, I think I see his foot. Um, <laughs> you know, and it was probably a cloud that had the shape of a foot or something. Right. And But yeah, I, I do remember as a kid thinking about this, like, you know, waiting, anticipating. It could happen at any minute. Why not now? Right. Um, and so, 
Yeah, this 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 idea. Then I like the way you put it that uh, the way that is going to happen, the rapture of the church, meeting Jesus halfway in between heaven and earth, mm-hmm. that is a bit more distinctive uh, to certain uh, theological positions like dispensationalism. But the imminent return of Jesus, there is a sense in which this is something that most traditions uh, in the Christian faith agree about. Yeah, it, it, a lot of it's the detail, but also it's it's the particular way um uh dispensationalist it's not just the, the rapture sort of kicks off a whole series of events in the dispensationalist system that are the ones that the left behind novels get into which is the rise of an antichrist that's going to sort of take over the whole world somehow going to impose a mark of the beast um which is right. you know the, our pop culture has done a number of different versions of that um that's going to be like on every individual and somehow if you're you know unless you pledge allegiance to the antichrist you're going to be um you're not going to get the mark and then you're not going to get to eat or, you know, whatever it'd be part of society. <laughs> um, all that kind of stuff is, um, very distinct to the dispensationalist view. Part of that is, is the way they have to read literally, but though not exactly literally, but, um, historically or, or in the material world that these prophecies are going to come true. Most Christians throughout history have not read revelation in particular in such a literal way. Um, there's a lot of very head spinning imagery about oceans and dragons and, uh, 10 horned beasts and all that kind of stuff. Um, and no one actually reads those literally, literally like there's going to be a 10 horned beast coming out of the ocean or something. But what dispensationists do is they see those and they, they try to sort of correlate, um, nations or events with those symbols in a very direct way, in a way that the, the famous one is, um, there's different sort of prophecies in or, or passages in revelation about, um, locusts, uh, sort of, hmm. um, you know, doing different things, which is a very common, you know, metaphor that you see all the way back in Exodus and everything, everything else. But for dispensationalists in the 20th century, um, they look at like a, Apache helicopters as like the modern locusts, And so they're trying to correlate like this sort of biblical image with something in the world today, or there's different passages that they try to correlate with like a nuclear explosion. Um, and that produces this very vivid, very dramatic, scenario that could feel like if you're in that world it feels like it could happen anytime based on news headlines and other things um but just to reiterate again that's 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 pretty distinct to that tradition most christians if you think about the whole catholic world the eastern orthodox world most of the rest of the protestant world um isn't bringing any of that um any of that to the text that that sort of developed out of the dispensationalist reading of the bible okay so maybe i want to ask you maybe a hermeneutical question here mm. so gog and magog Mm. Right. Uh, was that Russia? I'm trying to think, think back to my, my dispensational classes uh, from my undergrad and then also maybe Sunday school. Right. Is it Russia and China? Is that the two? Well, it depended on the time because at different, it depends on who the writer was um, and what they were looking at in their own world. So if you go all the way back to the 19th century, um, yes, the, the Russian, uh, the kingdom of Russia was part of that. And that's partly because there's another reference to the Prince of Rosh which to the English speaking ear sounds close to Rush, Russia, Rosh, Russia. Not the greatest way to sort of uh, come <laughs> to these conclusions, but that, that was one thing people did. But then if you, if you speed up to uh, the 20th century, well, you have the Soviet Union. And so that becomes, which is a wholly different entity than the Russian, the kingdom of Russia um, or the Russian empire. Um, and so Gog and Magog at different times is, is the Soviet Union or the Soviet Union and Iran or, or, or other things as well. So th- those are, that's one of the interesting things is how those things change over time that really reflect the era in which the theologian or the analyst is working in. is because they're trying to correlate immediate contemporary context to the biblical uh, passages. I asked that in part because I, in reading your book, um, the first few chapters these early kind of dispensationalists, they seem to be very careful in their exegesis, trying to really study the text. And then I felt like as, as I was reading it and time was kind of moving on, you got characters like um, Billy Sunday mm-hmm. or Moody who didn't seem to be as careful uh, as they were kind of walking through the text or maybe they didn't care and they were just citing other dispensationalists. But I, I wondered about some of those, uh, some of those claims about these, these cities that are mentioned so they're not, they're not universal. They're just, you're saying they're, they're depending on the context, uh, of the, uh, of the, uh, the person reading it or trying to interpret the text, mm-hmm. they're kind of adapting it to sort of what's happening around them socially, um, or culturally. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And, and you're right to point out that there's, 
uh, basically two levels where this can happen. One is a more academic conversation that tends to be in seminaries with theologians who um, are writing to each other. So it, it often is very dense uh, material. Um, often people who have training in the original biblical languages that are trying to parse some of this stuff. Um, and that's a conversation. Uh, there's another conversation that is somewhat linked to that, but is often separate, which is a more popular conversation. So uh, revivalists, like someone like Billy Sunday, who was a major revivalist in the early 20th century. Billy Sunday did not know Hebrew or Greek. Um, I, I'm, I'm not even sure if he went to college. He might have. Um, I'm not sure. He certainly didn't uh, ever claim to be a, an expert on the Bible. Um, his, his big cause was um, uh, temperance or, uh, or prohibition of alcohol oh, right. and, and winning people to Christ. He was a revivalist, so he was trying to convert people, um, as many as he could. Um, so he would be employing the sort of end time stuff for those, for those terms. So he'd be casting, uh, alcoholism in sort of apocalyptic terms, or he would be trying to pr pr uh, prompt people to trust in Jesus because the end is coming and you should, you know, you should be in the rapture. You don't want to be left behind type thing. Uh, that's a much different employment of eschatological language then would be happening in the seminaries at the same time. There's definitely a link because Sunday's not coming up with these ideas just on his own. He's definitely tapping into bigger conversations. Um, but he's using it in ways that many of those theologians, um, not all of them, but many of them would find pretty troubling, which if you're at all in an academic field, this happens in every field, right? There's like the popularizers and then the sort of specialists. And there's always a tension between uh, the specialists who want they're very nuanced, dense writing to be packaged in a certain way. And when popularizers come in and just sort of take the simple version, um, it often distorts uh, the actual uh, sort of thinking that went into it. So um, I don't want to present dispensationalism as entirely, um, you know, as, as high level as sort of other academic things. I think there were uh, major problems with the system uh, from the start, but there was that same dynamic of a sort of popular conversation and a scholarly conversation. Um, and the popular uh, conversation is a lot of where the correlation between uh, this war and this prophecy or Gog and the Gog equaling this country or that country, um, that was often on the popular level. Okay, so can you, can you say something about so, you know, how, how someone's eschatology can affect what they think about um, intellectual formation, issues around social justice? Yeah, because I, I assume there's there there's a lot of correlation there, right? Between the way you think about the end times, uh, your your theological position, and how that plays out uh, in a whole host of issues. Yeah, is that too big of a question? No, that's great. And I mean, the first thing I'd say is eschatology is not determinative of this thing. So there's not like an easy way where you can divide everyone into clean camps, um, where the way they view the end of the world is the way they. Um, will view social justice or politics or something like that. But there are strong influences that come out of eschatology. And here I'll introduce, um, uh, we've been talking a lot about dispensationalism, and dispensationalism is one version of a bigger bucket called premillennialism, which is the belief that Jesus will return to establish the millennium. So he'll come back pre-millennium uh, to establish it. And that's a big tradition, not just in the U.S. Uh, context, but in the sort of uh, Protestant tradition. And as I mentioned, you, if you want to use that category and try to go all the way back to the church fathers, it's, you know, it's hard to do that. But um, these are very modern categories we use now. But there were church fathers who basically believed that Jesus would come and establish a, a, a millennial kingdom. There's another tradition that uh, used to be very popular in the 19th century is no longer, and that's post-millennialism. And so that's the idea that um, it is actually Christians today and in the future who are going to establish the millennium through their own actions and through the actions of the Holy Spirit. And at the end of establishing a just global sort of kingdom, then Jesus will return. Um, and so it's almost the, it's the reverse of premillennialism. It's, it's the expectation that there's a lot of work to be done between now and when Jesus returns. There's a third position called amillennialism or amillennialism, which is like negating the millennium. And that's the rejection of the literal reading of the millennium. This, is, this all comes from one passage in Revelation 20 that talks about, you know, this is at the very end of the Bible, that talks about establishing a thousand-year kingdom. And amillennialists say that's a symbolic number. We don't need to read that as a literal 1,000 years. 
and they tend to see the church itself, like the, the Christians today active as the kingdom. And so they're not looking for some year, um, or, or dramatic thing, uh, to happen. But if you're a premillennialist or a postmillennialist, you're going to have pretty significantly different views on things like reform in your society. You might both be, if you're, if there's one of each, they might both be interested in certain types of reform. So I mentioned Billy Sunday was, uh, against alcohol. He was uh, for prohibition. He came at that from a premillennial position. Um, and he, he did so because he saw the corrosive effect of alcohol on individual people, on families, and, um, and thought that, uh, to be a good Christian, to be in a good Christian nation, less people should be drinking. And, um, at the same time, there were plenty of people that were prohibitionists that were post-millennial, but they saw what they were doing as sort of ushering in a set of norms in American society that would help establish the kingdom of God that was establishing the kingdom of God. And so they can sort of be side by side in the prohibition movement, but becoming, becoming at it for much different reasons. And, um, that's one where there was a sort of shared, uh, Protestant resistance to, uh, to alcohol on other issues. Um, you know, one really, uh, famous one or infamous one for dispensationalists is supporting the state of Israel. Um, and they do that out of this reading of prophecy where they see Jews and the state of Israel today as very important to the, the end times. Um, that's a very distinct thing that certain premillennialists view, but that postmillennialists have no interest in talking about sort of supporting Israel that doesn't fit into their, um, their eschatology. So that's a view, that's a position where you'd, you'd land pretty differently, um, politically based on if you're a post-millennialist or a premillennialist or an amillennialist who also would not be very interested, um, in that issue. So we could go through a bunch of issues where there's sort of a shared sense and then other issues where because of your views on eschatology, you would land, you, you typically land in a different camp uh, because of those views. Yeah. So if you're somebody with a premillennial view and you think the return of Christ is imminent, the rapture is going to happen. Is what you're saying? Maybe you're not focusing on building institutions where there's deep intellectual formation. Mm -hmm. You're worried about getting people out to the mission field, right? Yeah. As they used to say. Yeah. So you want to train missionaries to evangelize because hell's at stake, and it could happen at any minute. The return and those who are left behind. Well, all the stuff you mentioned earlier, mark of the beast. Yeah. Um, you know, you can't buy food. You'll get beheaded. Things like that. Is that sort of what's happening with this with this view of the end times that uh, th there's this this quote that's often attributed to Moody? I don't know if he actually said it. Why polish a sinking ship, right? Um, right? Have you heard that? Is that actually did he actually say that? Uh, he he said a version of that, which is um, I see myself as uh, throwing out life rafts from a sinking ship. Um, so okay. the idea that the 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 world is sinking. And he's throwing out life rafts to try to save people. So okay. um, that, that basically is the same gist of what yeah. you said. Good. Yeah. So I wasn't that far off. No, not that far off. Uh, so is that an accurate depiction then? That, you know, because they did build institutions. They cared right. about a certain kind of formation. But it, the, the end was not sort of live in society and develop, um, uh, you know, complex philosophical systems about ethics and morality. It was essentially, hey, no, we have to train people to go evangelize because there's so much at stake. Right. Yes, you're, you're entirely right. So a lot of the uh, global missions movement of about 100 years ago was run and inspired by and funded by uh, premillennialists, dispensationalists in particular, who believed that time was running out, or, or at least the time was limited. Um, and so a lot of missions organizations were founded by dispensationalists. A lot of the Bible institutes that become sort of the bedrock now of the Christian college world um, were founded as Bible institutes, which were basically two-year training programs to get people minimal or sort of basic Bible training to send them out to the mission field. Um, so that would include places like um, uh, Biola, which stands for, which is a, a college in California, pretty well known. Uh, it stands for Bible Institute of Los Angeles. That's where the term Biola comes from. Um, Moody Bible Institute is another famous one down in Chicago. There's, there's literally dozens of these across the country. There's probably hundreds of thousands of students like today that go to these places. They've changed a lot. So they're not all dispensationalist anymore, but they were founded under this thinking that time is limited. We don't need to learn about uh, ethical systems and philosophy and uh, even, even science. We need to learn the really basic things to survive on a mission field in the 20th century. 
Um, so that's another type of uh, organization they build. And another thing they love doing, uh, dispensationalists, is finding ways to share the good news, the gospel. So they're very into media and printing, and and dispensations tend to adapt any new medium, whether it's radio or television or uh, the internet, um, to get their message out. And so they they're very good at building media companies and exploiting uh, media, particularly sort of consumer oriented media, in the 20th century as well. So they they're not just because you're premillennialist doesn't mean you don't build things, but you are building them for very particular reasons. Um, and you could say the same thing about postmillennialists who are building uh, for much longer term. Uh, strategies but yeah th- that's that's one way that that you can really see them acting out in the world based on these convictions about what's coming next so wh- when did because these 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 universities you mentioned like biola mm-hmm. and moody I, i'm not sure about moody but biola anyway now we can you want to be an engineer you can go study engineering right if you want to be a physicist you can go get a ba in physics there right um i'm sorry bs but so mm-hmm. is that did that switch with kind of the fall? Uh, your book is The Rise and Fall. Mm-hmm. When this view became kind of unpopular, is there a correlation there between, hey, no, we, we don't just want to train missionaries. We need to train people to actually live in the society, think about human flourishing. Um, yeah. Is that accurate or? Yeah, it's, it's, it's very complicated. Um, there's a couple stories that go on. So not, there's, there's the theological story, which you're right. So Places like Biola um, no longer really promote dispensationalism in the way that they did 100 years ago. Um, they, Biola has a seminary. It's called Talbot Seminary. Um, Lewis Talbot was a very prominent dispensationalist uh, speaker, theologian. Um, even Talbot is sort of waffling on their commitment to that. So most students who go through Biola would never, uh, well, I'm sure they, they come across it somewhere, but they, they're not sort of being indoctrinated in the term that that's used for like religious education um, into a dispensationalist world. So it's not a contradiction to major in engineering um, at Biola. No, it never was. I mean, many of the early dispensationalists were actually engineers. They, they loved the way that the system um, rationalized a lot of the Bible and particularly the prophecy passages. Um, but even there, I, I see what you're getting at, which is uh, sort of long-term planning or, or yeah. whatever. Um, the other story there is the story of higher education and how most of these Bible institutes, um, become, uh, turn into colleges and then eventually universities. And there's a lot of pressures on them to do that, to survive. Um, the sort of demographics of people who want to go to a two-year Bible institute and then go out on the mission field declines. And part of that's the story of the rise of the middle class in America and the, and sort of the constituents that want, that they're catering to become much more middle class and much more eager to build you know, families and middle-class lives in the U.S. than to go out onto a mission field. Um, they also become um, uh, less sort of engaged in thinking that um, the end is, is uh, the sort of urgency of the rapture should dictate uh, all decisions. And part of that's the middle-class story. Part of that's um, uh, broadening sort of um, the, these Bible institutes sort of broaden their curriculum to look a lot more like colleges by the 1930s and 1940s. Um, and so the students that are coming in are developing a much different view of the world than they, they were in the 1910s or 1900s. So a place like Biola goes from an institute, um, and has a lot of momentum. So they turn into a college and by the time you're a college, I mean, the, the mission of a college is not to just send missionaries out on the mission field. It's to train people in the liberal arts and all these other things Hmm. that create a well-rounded education. And then by the, I actually don't know when Biola turned into a university, but it did in the late 20th century. And so now there's the whole sort of the whole science wing and everything else. And by today, you know, Biola's mission is not about, um, you know, uh, training as many missionaries before the rapture comes. (laughs) Um, It's about doing what most universities do, which is, you know, um, training students in the ways of being good citizens, in the ways of being uh, well-educated to get different careers, uh, all that kind of stuff, like any other university. So, yeah, not to pick on Biola, but I'm curious. So the theologians who are at Biola and Talbot, right, would they still hold this view, even if they're not dispensational mm-hmm. anymore, would they hold this view that the rapture of the church is imminent? Would they still talk like that? Is that language still being used at these yeah. evangelical institutions? Um, I, I'm not there, so I, I don't know. I would guess that, you know, less than a handful of faculty would subscribe to something like that. Um Many of the faculty at a place like Biola were trained at uh, Ivy League 
programs. I mean, it's just a whole different world than it was back in the day when there were sort of pipelines of people um, at, at, at Bible institutes that were sort of trained within the Bible Institute world. Um, in, the, in the seminary, the seminary still holds to premillennialism, um, uh, though uh, I'm not exactly sure how, how much. So we've been talking about dispensationalism as sort of one version of that. And, um, you know, there's, there's a new dean, um, uh, Ed Stetzer, uh, at Talbot, who, as far as I know, is not a dispensationalist. That would be very surprising to me if he, if he, if he was. Um, and he's a sort of well-known uh, speaker in the evangelical world. And so, you know, they're being led by someone who isn't really bought into the, the dispensationalist system. So um, there's a definite historical legacy there that's very important. And, um, and I'm sure some students go there because they expect to get that type of teaching. Um, but in sort of your daily experience, I know a number of people who graduated from Talbot who are not dispensationalists. That doesn't mean much because that happens all over the place. Just because a school is in a certain position doesn't mean everyone that goes through uh, inherits that position. But um, it's really so striking, and this is where the fall of, of the title uh, comes from, um, how much in the last 50 years dispensationalism has really shrunk its footprint in the evangelical world. If you, go to, if you rewind back to 1973, so 50 years ago, it's at sort of maybe the height or the end of the height of the dispensationalist influence on the broader Christian education world. And in, in pop culture, you have um, The Lake Great Planet Earth, a very popular book in the mm. 1970s um, that's selling in the millions by 1973. And so you'd never guess from there that 50 years later, um, the dispensationalist footprint in the seminary world would be very small. Uh, there are definitely some independent colleges um, and seminaries that still teach it. Um, they are a shadow of the broader uh, empire of dispensationalism, if you want to call it that, um, during the height of its influence. Um, and there's still a very pop culture influence of dispensationalism. But even within evangelical circles, that's also faded. It's become much more related to sort of Hollywood movies and depictions of Christians than it has been sort of something in the, in the evangelical subculture. So there's been a definite fall, and the, the story of the university is a, bit, is a big part of that. So. Speaking of pop culture, is there a new movie coming out with Kirk Cameron? Where I think there was. He was. He played. He, he was the original um, uh, Buck, whatever his last name was from from Left Behind. Yeah. So he was in a movie in two thousand, and then they they did a couple more. Um, it, it was rebooted again in I think twenty fifteen with Nicolas Cage as the <laughs> okay. main character, and then it's now being uh, I believe it's done filming. I don't know when it's coming out with Kevin Sorbo, uh, who was played Hercules back in the nineties. Wow, um, okay, who was a I was way off. It's not Kirk Cameron. No, he okay. was the first one. Uh, so you have Kirk Cameron, Nicolas Cage, and Kevin Sorbo have uh, been the three sort of headliner. Uh, That's incredible. People. And and Sorbo um, self funded this. So I, at this point, I think Left Behind is. I mean, it's just been rebooted a, a number of times now, but he is a committed evangelical Christian who buys into this, at least to some extent. I don't know if he buys into the whole thing or just thinks it's a good story or what. Um, but he is, he's sort of, he, I think he's directing the movie as well as acting in it. And I think he's self-funding it to an extent as well. So it's really that, a passion project for okay, him. Okay. That's what I saw. <laughs> so that brings me up to this question then, right? So if I walked into kind of a, a, a standard Protestant church today, Baptist evangelical say, Maybe they wouldn't know what this word is, dispensationalism, right. but they, they would still hold on to these kind of central core ideas, the rapture of the church, mm -hmm. the, the, the literal uh, kingdom of God being established for a thousand years, right? These are things that they would still believe, right? Yes. But, so would they still technically be dispensationalists or could we say, hey, let me tell me what you, what you think about the end times. Could we classify them and say, yeah, well, yeah, you're just you know, you're really just a closet dispensationalist. Yeah. You don't know it, but you are. Right. Um, well, I would like to think, uh, by the way, I mean, there, there's definitely a lot of Christians that, that, that holds true. So they, they might look like a, I don't know, um, a Pentecostal or a reformed Christian in their theology, except for the end times where they have a more dispensationalist view. I think it's all across the board. I would like to think, um, and I, I sort of make this case in the book that even though the subtitle talks about the battle over the end times. Um, dispensationalism is a much broader, it's a whole system of theology. So it sort of touches on, it's an eschatology, but it's also uh, another big word, ecclesiology. It's a sort of study of the church or what does it mean to be the church? It's also a, uh, it, it offers a certain definition of what it means to be saved, a soteriology. 
And so to be a, a sort of real dispensationalist, I guess, if I'm going to sort of be the gatekeeper, um, you need to hold more than just a few things about the end times. Um, uh, and I think most dispensationalist theologians over the years have also insisted on that, even though those have become the popular parts of their theology. Um, that's where one of the reasons I, I like playing with the word fall is that there's a perception that um, because everyone sort of knows what the rapture is, that that means dispensations is a very healthy, vibrant theology that must be really popular. Uh, when in fact, that's one of the few things from the entire sort of world of dispensationalism that's gotten that much traction. And um, to, to just give you one example, most dispensationalists are... Um, believe in a very particular way of understanding what it means to be saved. And it's called the free grace position, which means um, it's most sort of uh, exacting or, or um, extreme that to be saved means that at any point, if you've given a mental assent or if you've thought that you trust in Jesus, you are saved and that's it. Um, and, and you're in the, you know, sort of, um, it, 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 it's a very popular view among revivalists. It's sort of lets you in, in the moment sort of decide this. Many Christians, uh, particularly from the reform tradition in the Protestant world, reject this view. And um, there, there was a whole controversy in the 80s and 90s called the Lordship Salvation Controversy, which was much more popular among academics than any, and pastors than anyone else. But it was over this issue of, do you need to have some type of submission of your will um, beyond just thinking, oh, Jesus is my savior? Do you need to sort of give up your will to Jesus as your Lord? And these these are very sort of, um, fine-tuned things. But for many dispensationalists, this is a very crucial issue because it feeds into other parts of their theology where anything beyond a mental ascent is moving into sort of a works-based way of thinking about salvation. And because of the way that they divide the Bible, because of their hermeneutic, um, they really took a stand on this and wrote a bunch of books and people lost jobs and lost friends and everything else <laughs> over this. Um, and I'm guessing if you ask people in the pews at, at a given Presbyterian church or Methodist church, you get all over the place on like, what does it mean to be saved? Like, what do you actually have to do? Um, and so there it'd be really mixed on like, even if they all believed in the rapture or something, do they hold to the other parts of what it really means to be a dispensationalist? And my guess would be it's not very coherent anymore. It's not really coherent anywhere, right? Like any of these pastors and theologians are always frustrated that um, people in the pews like don't have more interest in theology, but I think dispensations is particularly like a, a case study in a really incoherent set of ideas now, um, sort of uh, being distributed in very odd ways in our in our Christian culture, um, and partly due because it's become so popular that different people sort of glam on to different parts. I think what struck me in reading the book is that it had a really good run. Mm, like, yes, and it yes. was so incredibly popular and um and i guess my question to you would be well dan what was the one thing that brought it down was mm. there one thing or was it hey this is just really incoherent we can't make sense of this these charts they're all over the place or was there a particular verse or an author mm. um yeah what, what led to kind of the fall and demise of this view of the end times more particularly but more broadly dispensationalism I wouldn't, um, I would never chalk up a fall to like its own objective incoherence because the world doesn't work like that. Just because something isn't true doesn't mean it doesn't work or it doesn't <laughs> succeed. Right. And the reverse is also not true. Just because something is true doesn't mean it succeeds either. So I think there's, there's definitely, if you're a theologian and you're not a dispensationist, you're going to say this fell apart because it's just not even intellectually consistent. And um, I t if I get in my theological mode, I can see those arguments and I, I agree with them, but I would point to a more, uh, sort of social sociological reason. And, and part of that is dispensationalism was never the only game in town, even at its, um, it had a really good run. I agree with you, but even in the forties, fifties, sixties, um, when it was really at the height of its in a, a academic credibility and it was just getting all this popular steam, there were very strong opponents to it, even within the conservative Protestant world, let alone the rest of the sort of uh, Christian world that, that didn't agree with it. And the, those critics really developed, um, sustained critiques and actually built institutions to train people, um, to oppose dispensational. That, that was the only reason, but that was one of the sort of reasons why, and th this particularly comes through in the reform tradition. So the, if you think of sort of the traditional Calvinist 
Um, you think of Calvin College and the Dutch Calvinists, or if you think of a broader just reformed tradition, most reformed uh, Christians in the U.S. are not dispensationalist. They are in our categories that we were using. They were amil- they're amillennialist. Um, some of them are post millennialist, but most of them are amillennialist. And the way they understand the biblical story is one much more of continuity between the Old and New Testament. And we didn't even get to the term dispensationalism refers to these dispensations that mm. um, that dispensations think that really sort of discontinuity throughout the Bible, that God acts in different ways at different times with different people. And so Reformed people sort of reject that. And they actually, at their most extreme, think it's, it's heretical or at least a very destructive reading of, of the biblical story. And they really built a whole intellectual infrastructure, um, a seminary network that instilled in their um, students a resistance to dispensationalism. And you can see on the other side, that did not happen on the dispensationalist side. They tried. They had a good run. They tried to build uh, seminaries and journals and uh, uh, denominations and other things that would promote their view. Um, but, but when you get to the seventies and eighties, you start reading more and more of people and they would often talk about it as like conversion stories, but, um, people converting out of dispensationalism into other eschatological views, which as we've been talking about sort of reshape all your other commitments in your, in your theological world. Um, and you see a, sort of a brain drain happening in the seventies and eighties. Uh, and by the nineties, there's actually internal re- critique of the dispensationalist system. Um, at places like Dallas Seminary, which is sort of the the, um, the citadel of dispensationalist <laughs> uh, theology, and you you actually see a revision to the system called progressive dispensationalism that um, really sees a lot of ground to the theological opponents. And so, um, if you look at it just sociologically or, or just sort of in in uh, institutions, um, the opponents of dispensationalism are were much more effective at building institutions to promote their views and perpetuate them generation after generation than were the dispensationalists. And you could chalk that up to that sort of short-term thinking we were talking about. Though I, I think for many of the people who were leading these organizations, they really did um, think long-term. They really wanted dispensationalism to continue, but they were sort of bested, not just intellectually, but sociologically or financially and uh, culturally as well. Um, and the irony to me, or sort of the, the really interesting part, is that at the same time that they're losing this story, the sort of popularizers are really winning the, the popular culture and are getting uh, massive amounts of capital, um, of, of revenue, um, based on the Left Behind series and other things. But they're not reinvesting it into perpetuating the theological system. They're, they're spending it on their own media empires. Or uh, we don't even need to get into this, but or in the politics where people like Tim LaHaye, who co-wrote the Left Behind novels, um, he was very involved in conservative politics and, and sort of spent a lot of his energy and a lot of his um, credibility and financial capital that he accrued from selling books on politics as opposed to perpetuating a theological system. Uh, so that's, that's the sort of bigger story. And um, uh, it's one that doesn't necessarily mean dispensationalism is false in some type of absolute way. Um, I, there's plenty of times where um, good thinking falls on hard times and uh, has to recover or something. Um, but uh, but it, but it really is this broader story that dispensationalists lose out on. Yeah, that's great. Thanks, Dan. So maybe one final question for you. Um, so I, I guess I, I am guilty when I when I think about eschatology. I do have kind of a negative reaction to that sometimes, mm-hmm. or oftentimes. And I think, oh, this is a lot of speculation about things we really don't know much about. Revelation, to me, um, I read a little book in seminary that was great, but I walked away even more confused um, about that book. Uh, I find it perplexing. Um, and I think if you look at the history of commentators on that book, they also have found it quite perplexing. So I, yeah, I have this negative reaction. Is there a better way or a way forward, or, or a better way to think about the end times that doesn't sort of just automatically take one to nuclear bombs and <laughs> plagues and things like that? Yes, I think so. Um, well, one, uh, I believe it was Martin Luther who basically said if he could vote one book out of the Bible, it would be Revelation. Like it was sort of, if he was going to rank all 66, it was <laughs> number 66. <laughs> it might have been Calvin. It was one of the great, uh, the magisterial reformers who did that. Um, so yeah, there's a long tradition of, of being unsure, unsure what to do with particularly revelation though. Uh, you know, Daniel's a pretty odd book as well. Um, particularly the second half. Um, I think the most helpful thing for me, and I end the book 
this way. I talk about um, someone I really like reading, Leslie Newbegin, who is a, a writer, um, an Anglican writer, who talks about uh, the Bible is a it's a it's not just a set of rules or wisdom literature. It's a story, and it's mm-hmm. a cosmic story, and a story has to have a beginning and an end. And in fact, it's it's once you sort of take the time to to, to learn about it. The Bible's expertly crafted to sort of tell a story uh, through it. And eschatology can be the sort of weird fixation on the details of the end uh, in some sort of future-oriented way. Or it can be the thematic end to the story um, that the Bible's telling. I do think there's a future element to it, so it's not entirely something where it's, it's, there isn't sort of a historical or a future component to it. But I think, I think for Christians who aren't familiar with these eschatological debates or sort of reject them entirely, I think there's a tendency to not see ourselves as part of a story, um, to sort of see Christianity as sort of just a set of rules that we follow to sort of appease God or, or, or whatever. But um, that's not the, how the Bible presents it. And so I, I talk about Leslie Newbegin, then I talk about N.T. Wright, who's some, one of my favorite um, uh, sort of New Testament historians out there. Who talks about um, the need to um, understand what we're doing in the world as Christians, as participating in the new creation? So, if if Jesus came and died and resurrected, he inaugurated something new in history when he did that, and so we're part of the story continued forward, and that story will have an ending, and that ending is, you know, in the vaguest sense or in the sense that's most general, is that Jesus will return in bodily form. Um, I think a lot of the other details after that. Um, uh, you know, you can, you can debate about. Um, but as long as we have that sort of vision that we're within the middle of a story that we're called to sort of participate in that story and we're called to invite others to be in that story. Um, that's really where eschatology can help because it can get you in the mindset or it can, it can remind you that, um, uh, that God isn't finished with his work and that, um, uh, that there is yet more, uh, to be done. And uh, I think this is, Ultimately, one thing dispensationalists, for better or worse, have forced other Christians, in the U.S. context in particular, but elsewhere as well, to confront is um, dispensationalists have a very clear sense that there's a story happening and that the story is coming to some conclusion pretty soon, um, and they have pretty good ideas about how it's going to end. And if you disagree with that, it forces you, and I see this sort of over and over again in the history, uh, it forces you to to respond, and it forces you either to reject the idea that that Christianity is a story. Most people don't do that. Or it's to understand, well, what does my tradition say about that? Or what was our response as, um, as a non-dispensationalist to this very strong proposal that, um, that the story's ending very soon. And so as best dispensationalists have prompted other Christians to think through, um, their own relationship to the biblical narrative and to uh, the promises that I think most Christians have like hold dear about uh jesus returning again at some point in the future um so yeah that's where i would leave it is is thinking about the cosmic story um and um and and making that sort of the way you enter the eschatological conversation awesome that was great thanks dan it's been a real pleasure talking today with you and if you haven't done so yet i encourage you to go buy his book uh, he did not tell me to plug this, but I'm going to anyway. Uh, the Rise and Fall of Dispensationalism. And the longer subtitle there is, grabbing the book right now, <laughs> How the Evangelical Battle Over the End Times Shaped a Nation. Again, I'm almost done with this book. It's fascinating. All the different characters that I, that I grew up hearing about, hearing a bit more of their backstory has been wonderful. Dan, thanks again for joining us. Really great to have you today. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us. If you enjoyed today's podcast, be sure to subscribe and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to check out our upcoming events on upperhouse.org. The Upwards podcast is supported by the Stephen and Laurel Brown Foundation. It is produced at Upper House in Madison, Wisconsin. Hosted by Dan Hummel, music by Micah Bear, audio engineering by Jesse Koopman, and graphic design by Madeline Ramsey. Please follow us on social media, including Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn with the handle at Upper House UW.